Don't even think about acting on the environment until you finish this series. I start many of my talks these days with the following questions, and in rooms with close to 1,000 people, nearly every hand goes up. If you answer yes, this series is for you. How many of you listening are aware that we humans face environmental problems? How many of you pollute more than you want to? You try to reduce, but you can't as much as you want. How many of you have given up even trying? Do you feel feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, guilt, shame? Do you want to overcome them? Let me start by telling a story. I was walking through Washington Square Park. I live in Greenwich Village. It's kind of my backyard. I pick up litter every day. I'm walking through the park picking up litter. And some guy, I hear some guy say, thank you. So I turn around. It's a guy sitting there on the bench. He's got a construction vest on, his construction helmet next to him. I guess he's off duty. It's just him by himself. And we get to talking. He thanks me for picking up litter. I say, well, you know, I just do it. I think it's part of my duty. I, no big deal. But we talk for, I don't know, maybe half an hour talking about lots of different things. One of the things we talk about is I mentioned that when I pick up litter and put it in the trash, that's not actually cleaning the world. It's just moving litter from one place to another. But it does lead me to change my behavior. Because of picking up all this litter, it makes me feel disgust about getting stuff that causes litter. So I get less packaged food. So that reduces the money going into the system to extract and create this pollution. And I mentioned also, it leads me to get more fresh food. And I actually compared my, my food budget to the average Americans, and it's, it's less despite getting more fresh stuff. And not everyone can do it, but the more people who do it, the more it becomes accessible for others. In any case, I point down at my body and I say, I can eat tons. Like Since I'm eating all this fresh, all this kale and, and, and spinach and stuff, which I have come to cook and, and really like how I cook it, so it tastes really great, and I eat a lot, and I indicate my body and I say, I'm pretty fit. He indicates his body and he points out that he's obese and he says, I wish that I could change, but I can't. It's just too late for me. If you know about Washington Square Park, the northwest corner is overrun with drugs. For decades, there's always been weed available. Now it's meth and fentanyl and crack and heroin. We're in view of what the residents there call, call crack row, but out of earshot. So I point over to them and I say, you know, since I pick up litter every day, I haven't talked to them. You know, I've had half hour, 45, maybe hour long conversations with a few people there. I say, you know, over there, they're using crack and heroin and fentanyl. He goes, yeah, so I've heard. And I say, when I talk to them, they tell me that they can't stop either. They say that they're too far gone. And I say to him, can they stop? He looks at me and his, I could see the gears going in his head. He thinks, and then he says to me, you're right, I can stop. Now, I didn't say anything to him about him stopping. That was him on his own. Actually, at that point, he, uh, he, he reaches into his pocket and takes out a big wad of bills, and he hands me a 20. And I'm like, I, I don't need this. And he goes, take it. I go, no, 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 thanks. I appreciate it, but no thanks. I, I'm just picking up litter. And he goes, no, take it. It'll be more, your message will resonate with me more if you take this money. So I'm like, okay, if it helps you, I'll take it, I'll give it to, to some charity. And he goes, no, 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 take it, spend it on anything you want, just enjoy it. So how did I know not to tell him you can do it, but to say to him something that led him to say it himself? Why had I been picking up litter? Why did I see hope in this? Why was I talking to people who take meth and fentanyl? What was I learning from them? This talk or this series of podcast episodes or video episodes is going to lead you 
to where you're going to want to change. Another time, a reporter was doing a story on me. She was profiling how I don't pollute very much and I enjoy it. After she does the story, she calls me up and says, after talking to you, I wanted to make some changes myself. She talks a bunch and she says, you know, my big problem is that I got a Keurig machine at home. For people who don't know, Keurig machines are coffee makers and they take these little cartridges that you have to throw out. So a lot of people freak out. People who fly all around the world without a second thought, but they freak out about these Keurig things. And some people know that there's like disposable, uh, reusable ones. And she says, what do I do about that? I say, I've solved a lot of problems for myself, but I'm just solving them as I face them. I don't know how to solve that one because I don't drink coffee. But I think I can tell you what you can do to solve the problem yourself. I said, what I generally do is if there's something I want to avoid, I avoid it for a while and figure out what happens. So I, I recommend in your case, don't use the Keurig machine for a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month. And I don't know exactly what will happen, but I think one of two things will happen. Either maybe you'll stop drinking coffee. I don't drink coffee. I'm fine. In which case, problem solved. Maybe you will, well, you'll probably realize, as I do, that people have been drinking coffee for centuries before Keurig was ever around, and they figured out how to do it, and you'll probably figure out how to do it. I don't know exactly what it'll be. Maybe a French press. And she says, oh, I have a French press machine. My friend bought me one. It's sitting in my cupboard. Here's how not to stop using Keurig machines. Keep using Keurig machines. Here's how to stop. Stop, and you will find alternatives. If you try to solve every problem before you start, You'll never start. If you think that one day there'll be planes that can fly without polluting, the absolute worst way to bring that about is to keep flying planes that use jet fuel. People really don't want to start trying. And we have this culture in this series, and one of my big messages is to break, to get away from this culture of saying what you do doesn't matter, that if it's not big enough to solve all the world's problems, it's not worth doing. No one says about, say, sexism or racism, Oh, I can't solve the whole thing, so I'll just keep being sexist and racist. But with sustainability, people say, well, I can't fix everything, so I I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. As we move on in this series, you'll pick up why people do that. I'm going to tell another story. I went to the supermarket, and I decided to look at 100 people coming through and look at what they're buying in their shopping carts. In the time that I went, and it was over the course of several times to get up to 100, every single item in every single cart was packaged. I know some people will buy produce and not put in, in plastic, but every single one that I watched did. And it was mostly plastic. It led me to do this calculation. If everyone in the world has one packaged thing per meal, and it's plastic, and plastic takes a thousand years to break down, but let's say it's only half the people in the world. So four billion people, three meals a day, times 365 days a year, times It lasts a thousand years, but let's say conservatively 500 years for the plastic to break down. Multiply these numbers out, you get 2.2 quadrillion pieces of plastic. And this is a huge underestimate because most people have significantly more than one of the items they have every meal comes packaged. And people eat snacks during the day. It's probably more than 4 billion people and it probably lasts more than a thousand years. In any case, how much can we cut down to where that 2.2 quadrillion becomes a reasonable number. Oh, by the way, there's also a lot more than food that's, that's leading to plastic. I mean, cars break down and, and all this stuff. It's poisonous. The plastic doesn't go away. It breaks it out into smaller and smaller bits. You probably know that your veins and your arteries have plastic in them. I believe it crosses the placenta. I believe it messes with our hormonal systems. So this stuff is terrible. It's unhealthy. 2.2 quadrillion. I can think of only one number 
that when you multiply it by 2.2 quadrillion remains reasonable, and that number is zero. It seems to me that if we, in order just to eat, that, that is to say to live, we need to hurt others. We need to mess with people's endocrine systems and poison wildlife. I think we have to get to zero plastic. If you can think otherwise, show me how. And certainly we lived without plastic for 300,000 years as human beings, so we don't need it. Some people describe it as convenient, but we've barely begun to scratch the surface of how much it can damage. Can we get to zero? That led me to start asking a bunch of people, can you imagine a world in which no one pollutes? And I've asked a lot of people this question. Can you imagine a world in which no one pollutes? That means no flying, no driving. You know, driving an electric vehicle pollutes. You probably know, and if you don't know, we'll get to it in a future episode, how much pollution batteries, solar panels, and wind farms, how much pollution they create. They're not clean, green, or renewable. Anyway, back to the question. The most common answer I get to can you imagine a world in which no one pollutes is no. Most people that I ask cannot even imagine. And let's remember, people didn't pollute up until about the Industrial Revolution. And I don't count burning wood or pooping, things that existed before humans did. I don't count that as pollution. Lead pipes here and there, but nothing like on the scale that we have today. So people can't imagine the world that actually existed. The number two answer is some combination of reverting to the Stone Age, which means there's no infrastructure, no hospitals, mothers are going to die in childbirth, 30 years old age. If you get the smallest cut, there's no antibiotics, so you get gangrene, you have to amputate, and there's no anesthesia. Or roughly the same idea, some post-Mad Max apocalyptic, we're just scratching plants out of the dirt, just barely eking it out. So I put to you that if you ask someone who can't imagine a world without pollution, or if they do imagine that world, think it's some hellscape or some Stone Age disaster, if you ask that person not to pollute, you may get compliance. Oh, sure, Josh, I'll go without straws for a week if that's what you want. But if they believe that that road, that path ultimately leads nowhere, one, they're going to resist it. They might comply in the short term, but ultimately not do it. And they're also going to think that you, if you ask them, are foolish or ignorant or stupid or blind. You're not going to be credible in their eyes. And you're going to lose your ability to influence them. Asking people tells me most people don't imagine this possible. And so asking them not to pollute is asking them to go down some blind alley into some hellscape. In later episodes, I'm going to present the science and engineering for our near future. That is the course of the next decades. I'm holding back on presenting it now because people tune out what they see as hopeless. And our near future is dire. Some of the options, if we continue using fossil fuels, that will create an unlivable environment. And they're running out anyway. If we switch to what we call clean, green, and renewable things like solar and wind, well, I'll show... And the research is abundantly clear on this, that they are not clean, they're not green, they're not renewable. On the contrary, they create also an unlivable environment, and we can't wrap them up in time to sustain our way of life anyway. Nuclear fusion also creates an unlivable environment and can't wrap up in time. Fusion, well, it doesn't exist yet, and even if it did, and say it met all the dream properties, say it didn't pollute any carbon dioxide, any greenhouse gases, it would still create an unlivable environment. I'll talk about that in a later episode. I don't want to get into it now because... When people feel no hope, they resist listening to these things. And I want to get to a place where you can see that there is a solution, and it's a glorious solution you wish you had done earlier, but we can't get to it yet. But basically, you'll find that nothing works to support our quantity of energy use, but that doesn't mean that we have to keep using energy to the extent we can. 
one of my major points is to bust a major myth that quality of life depends on consumption of materials and energy, at least beyond far below what the world average is. We believe that we need to consume materials and energy in order to have a high quality of life. But if anything, in our current situation, where consumption, where we are, hurts and kills people over there, which is to say around the world, or if you're in the United States, we actually have places called Cancer Alley because we've polluted it so much, cancer rates are very high. We actually have places called sacrifice zones. So given that if we do stuff that here that hurts people there in a species like humans with a conscience, we are lowering our quality of life by consuming more because we care about how we affect other people and we know that it's happening and it's twisting us up inside. I will show how consuming less will, if done effectively, it will dramatically improve your quality of life. You will wish you had started earlier. This result was contrary to my expectation, but the more I learn of history, anthropology, and the relevant engineering, and my experience practicing these things, I'm not gonna ask you to consider doing something that I'm not doing myself, the more clear it becomes. When you see a way forward, then the projections that look like doom to everyone with the old view that the lower energy supply means catastrophe. This new view will give you clarity and resolve for you personally and for your communities politically at all levels. I should give a bit of my background. I'll give a lot more later, but you may know I have a PhD in physics, so I, I know a fair amount of the science. I have an MBA, so I know a bit of how to make things happen. But I didn't believe that I could make a difference. I grew up, I don't remember a time when I didn't know about potential for sea level rise, climate change, plastic pollution, things like that, smog, acid rain. I grew up in the 70s, and this was well known. But I also believed, what could I do? Only governments and corporations could make a difference on the scale that we needed. So even though I knew that things were happening, I didn't know what I could do about it. I knew physics and figured fusion, fission, maybe some technical advances would solve our problems, but not individuals acting. So I never acted. I'm gonna talk a lot more about the following in future episodes, but about 10 years ago, I did something that I really had no intention for becoming an important part of my life. And if I really look back carefully, frankly, I believe that I wanted the experiments that I'm about to talk about to fail because then I wouldn't have to act. So about 10 years ago, I looked at my garbage and thought, well, maybe I can't fix all the world's problems. I, only I can take personal responsibility for my garbage. And this is gonna end up in the world. I'm paying for the production of plastic and other waste. So I challenged myself to see if I could go without packaged food for a week. There's a whole story there, I'll get into it later. I made it two and a half weeks. I expected it would be a disaster. I mean, I, I thought, I live in New York, there's great food around. I thought I was depriving myself. Well, once I learned how to cook from scratch, then I found I actually, my food became more convenient, more delicious, cheaper, better in every way that mattered to me. Also connected me more with people, including my, the farmers where I get my food. It led now, 10 years later, it's I'm on my load of garbage. I'm on my fourth year on one load of garbage. That's the physical, one of the physical results is that I'm saving money, saving time, polluting a lot less, food tastes better, Looking back now, it's also, it was the beginning of what I did, of a process in corporate speak is a, a mindset shift followed by a process of continual improvement. And I'm now 10 years into a process of continual improvement. A couple other steps. Oh yeah, because of that mindset shift, I started thinking what other things do I expect will make my life worse if I go without that might actually make my life better. And there's a whole story around the next one, which was I challenged myself to go for one year without flying. Now, most people when they hear this, they think, oh, I can't do that. Josh, maybe he can, but I can't. But the reasons they can't, family, work, making a living, cuisine and adventure, all those things, 
all apply to me. Believe it or not, as much as for anyone that I've ever talked to about it, I thought it would be impossible. I thought I was taking one for the team. And within a couple months, I realized I could get the things that I thought only came from flying without the flying and with much less pollution. Now I haven't flown since 2016, and there's a pretty good chance I'm never going to fly again because not flying improves my life, not out of deprivation or sacrifice or taking one for the team. So this led to a roughly two and a half year period in which I reduced my environmental impact. That's overall everything, according to some online calculators. So not just carbon emissions, but pollution of all sorts by 90%, over 90% in under two and a half years to from about the average American to, I think it was definitely below the world average, roughly the level of someone in India. And this was improving my quality of life. When I realized that this was happening and that others could go through this mindset shift followed by continual improvement, I began my podcast. And that led to developing what's now called the Spodic Method, which is a process by which I lead people. And you can listen to my podcast to hear me doing it to evoke their environmental values and lead them to act on those values, which is to act intrinsically, not extrinsically. I, you'll hear me say this. I'll say this over and over again. I cannot stand CCCSC, convincing, cajoling, coercing, seeking compliance, which seems to be the main way that environmental would-be leaders try to motivate people. It backfires. Convincing, cajoling, coercing, seeking compliance it generally reinforces people to resist what you're trying to get them, what you're trying to convince them to do. Leadership is different. And why did I say would-be leaders? Because those are tools of management. Management is more about instruction, measurables, deliverables, things you can see and touch, uh, carrots and sticks. And by the way, management is necessary to get the job done for many jobs. Leadership is different. Leadership is about vision, role models, emotions, motivations, stories. If you want to change culture, you've got to lead as well. Not to, so management alone doesn't do the job. Leadership alone, you'll just get dreamers without getting the job done. Management plus leadership, that works. But no one's doing the leadership part. So that's the Spodak method. And this series that you're listening to now is the companion series. This is like the theory to the Spodak method is the practice. So there's another series. It'll walk you through the Spodak method. So you'll feel inspired to act. Maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, but it comes in time. And it will also teach you to lead others through the Spodak method so you will be able to inspire others. Over the years, my skills improved in this process of continual improvement. I read an article about how most of the world refrigerates less than America does. Something like a third, a quarter to a third of Americans have two refrigerators. This is an article about Vietnam, and it said that they had different food systems, they eat more healthy. I had learned from the past experiments that analyzing planning only delayed. So before I could stop myself, I just walked over and unplugged my fridge, expecting I could maybe make it a day or two, made it three months. In that time, I learned to ferment and a couple other things. I tried it again a while later, made it six and a half months. The next time I decided to go for eight months, along the way, I figured out the rest of what I needed to do and I made it a full year. And now I'm, I don't know, 15, 16 months. There's a good chance I'll never plug my refrigerator in again. And that led to the big thing, which was unplugging my entire apartment that is going to the circuit breaker to the electric grid and disconnecting the circuit. So my apartment, as I speak right now, is physically disconnected from the electric grid. Having dropped 90%, I enjoyed the process so much and I enjoyed the results so much. What did I enjoy? Greater self-awareness, polluting a lot less, saving money, more than anything else, connecting with all those people that I'm not flying to go visit, like indigenous cultures and other places. I'm connecting more with them. I mean, you want to learn what another culture is like. Unplug your fridge. It costs you nothing. You can do it right now. You don't have to plan. You can just do it. 
that's what I did. Of course, I'd done other things before that. So I'd learned a bit of how to live more sustainably. So maybe it's not the first thing you do, but yeah, do the Spodic method with the other series. I'm just saying about myself that I've now disconnected my apartment. As I record these words, I'm something like eight months in and I'm thriving. Others see deprivation. They see the material things that I don't have. But I see more of, you ever get that question of what do you want your gravestone to say? I have more of those things. More, well, for me, it's joy, fun, freedom, connection, community, meaning, purpose. Others call me extreme, but I consider myself traditional. Everyone lived without an electric grid up until something like 100 years ago. Everyone lived without a fridge up until something like 100 years ago, and many people still do. I'm connecting more with them. Most of all, these changes led to where I want to learn more of how my actions, when I pollute, when I pay for extraction and so forth, I want to learn more of how my actions hurt others. Not because I like to dwell in it, because only when I know can I stop, instead of suppressing, denying, rationalizing, and justifying. Let me share what goals I have for making these recordings. So this will be a list of about 10 or 15 things. Number one, to lead you to embrace acting beyond just talking. We live in a world today where people at cocktail parties, they just, oh, I'm so outraged. Everyone should do this. Everyone should do this. Have you heard about that? Without actually acting themselves. So I want to lead you to embrace acting beyond just talking. I want to lead you to stop blaming others and looking backward at the past. It's useful to know the history, but I want to lead you more toward taking responsibility and looking forward to what comes next. I want to lead you to expect that your life will improve the more that you act sustainably. Contrary to what I expected before I tried, I thought I was taking one for the team. Turns out, for lots of cultural reasons, I expected erroneously that things would be worse when, by my values, they got better. So I want to help you to understand why our culture taught you to think otherwise, to think that sustainability would not be fun, and to move on from there, to move on to new cultural values. I want to help you to expect that society and humanity will improve by all of our relevant values the more that you act sustainably, so that you acting will lead others to act on a significant level. I want to lead you to expect that the more that you act, the more that others will act, that you will become a leader. Whether intentional or not, you will lead others and people want to follow you. I want to give you a vision that humanity living sustainably will be a brighter future than anything possible unsustainably. Now that means you have to know what things are gonna be like if we don't live sustainably. So I expect to lead you to want to learn more about the science. As I said, I find that if you don't believe a brighter future is possible, you will block out information pointing to sustainability. So more information won't help. People who can't imagine a brighter future, it's like, stop telling me, I already know, I can't do anything. What good does it do just to make me feel guilty? On the contrary, after this series, I believe that you'll want to know more because you will feel powerful and you'll want to act. And the more that you know, that will motivate you to want to act more. I wanna lead you to see that while you didn't cause nor did you create the system that you were born into. None of us did, we were born into it. But we are contributing to and supporting that system. Each of us, including you, are responsible for each of our role, including your role in it. If we don't act, I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's unfair. It seems to me unfair that it falls on us, people who did not create the system. But if we don't change, it won't happen. Nothing will change. So unfair as it may be, we have to step up and do it. One of the big things I want to get across is that we will enjoy this. It's not the terrible, we're not heading toward a dystopic future, or we are if we don't act, but this will lead you to want to act and will act in ways that will bring about a brighter future. 
we all have to act collectively from the bottom up, individually, all of us, also institutions. But whether it's fair or not, those institutions, if you're one of the people who says governments, corporations, they're the ones causing it. They're the ones who should change. Well, you're going to wait a long time if you expect them to act first. We have to act first. That's the way it's always been. It works for us to act first. I want to lead you to get there. I want to lead you to see that what the system gives us, as one example, comfort and convenience, we've learned to think it replaces drudgery and suffering, but you'll find that's our rationalization and justification, justifying our polluting behavior. Now, to some extent, things that polluting allows does replace some drudgery and suffering with comfort and convenience, but we blow that way out of proportion. We tend to think of uh, washing machines and the alternative to washing machines of some backbreaking labor. But we could get around those things other ways. But most things like takeout, McDonald's, cooking is not backbreaking. It's actually meaningful and purposeful. Comfort and convenience in many ways replaced meaning and purpose. Watching TV has replaced participating in culture. Watching sports on TV has replaced playing sports. Take away refrigeration, for example, you might think your casserole is going to go bad faster. That's one case. But the systemic effect is that we will get fresher food, more regional cuisine. Take away streaming movies, and we get the Iliad told by the campfire, things like that. I want to help you learn to lead others. As I mentioned, the series is a companion to a course on learning the Spodic Method. That's an experiential series that will lead you to a mindset shift followed by continual improvement and will lead you to be able to lead others through a mindset shift followed by continual improvement. We overestimate what we can do in a day and underestimate what we can do in a year. Do the Spodic method and keep going. Don't do one thing and stop, you keep going. You'll take a lot of little small steps. And after you take a certain number of small steps, people won't see the middle steps. They'll only see, they'll see just a big step. And they'll think, oh my God, how are you doing so much stuff? And you'll think, it's not that much. I've just been doing lots of little steps. And then you'll lead them and they'll catch up. I want to lead you to love your communities, your family, and your local environment and see how our polluting culture was depriving you of them. We tend to think of one flight will bring us to distant family, but flying in general is why we, left, why we lived flying distance apart in the first place. We tend to think of this polluting stuff as bringing us things that actually it brings us less of. I'm going to talk about that more later. I'm going to help you learn to love nature. Especially for me, one of the big things is I love trees and walking in the forests, but food is my most intimate contact with nature. I mean, it's a full sensory experience and it it becomes me. I believe that you will find more pleasure and spiritual interaction with nature, especially through food. I want to lead you to see how whatever your beliefs, whatever your political leanings, that sustainability supports these things and unsustainability undermines these things, especially in helping others who are innocently suffering. As far as I know, most religions, I think all of them, have some component, as well as different views on life, have some element of, of compassion and empathy in helping others. Also, connecting with nature and living sustainably, acting in stewardship, following do unto others as you would have them do unto you, live and let live, leave it better than you found it. This connects us with humanity and the universe, the divine. I've seen it in my podcast guests, and leaders that I work with who are evangelical Christian, Muslim, Jewish, conservative, libertarian, liberal, military, Trumpists, old, young, male, female, or every identity. Now, for the environmental and leadership-minded of you, I want to lead you to see huge, huge, as in billions of people, global demand 
for how to live sustainably, there's virtually zero supply of it. I can't think of almost anyone who's trying to live sustainably among leaders, among people trying to influence others. There's plenty of people going off and living in the woods, but they're not trying to lead others. The opportunity for you to both create a legacy for yourself and to lead others to make legacies. That's why I work on my podcast with CEOs, with politicians, with cultural leaders like sports stars and movie stars and authors. There is an opportunity to help people improve their lives and to create futures through living sustainably. Some will create legacies. It could be you on the scale, and I'm not joking here, of Lincoln, Buddha, Jesus, Confucius, Aristotle, well beyond, say, Adam Smith or James Madison. I believe that cultural change that we are about to go through, should we go through it, has the ability to create legacies on that scale. I said a bit about myself. I said a bit about the science and some stories of where I'm coming from, where we're going to go. I'll wrap up for this episode at roughly half an hour. And the next one, I'll talk about what's about to come. So stay tuned and we'll pick up here next time.